We continue in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 27, beginning at verse 1. And you really do need a Bible open in front of you. The authority is in the text, and it is the text that is expounded in preaching of the Word of God. Let us pray. Our Father, we ask that the coldest and hardest hearts here today, far removed from Jesus Christ, will be by your Holy Spirit drawn, that they may be saved from sin by the truth of your word, by the gospel, by Jesus alone and what he has done for sinners. And may your people be refreshed in the truth. May we be more conformed to the image of your Son, having been here today, than when we came this morning. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 27, beginning with verse 1. This is the Word of God. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, What is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury, since it is blood money. So they took counsel and brought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now, at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, For I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, 
which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him, and took the reed, and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe, and put his own clothes on him, and led him away to crucify him. On the basis of Scripture... Every Lord's Day, we use the words of the Apostles' Creed, He suffered under Pontius Pilate. If the prior section demonstrates the judgment of the religious establishment severed from the gospel, this section shows judgment upon the civil establishment that refuses to bow to Christ's Lordship. More importantly, it shows, as we saw under the trial of Caiaphas, that we need a righteous substitute, someone to go to trial for us in our place. Now, John's gospel gives more detail than does Matthew, but we're focused upon Matthew. We are not certain of the setting of this trial before Pontius Pilate. Many think that it was at Herod's old palace on the west side of Jerusalem. We really don't know, but it happened. It's history. First thing we see is the opening scene. In the first couple of verses of chapter 27, it's morning. The day our Lord was crucified, the Sanhedrin had met illegally and passed a resolution, a plan to deliver Jesus to civil authorities and to demand a death sentence. They had decided how to present their case against Jesus to Pilate. Their concern is blasphemy, but Pilate would not be concerned about that. That Jesus claims kingship could be presented in a way that suggested treason, this is their goal. And they bound him, and they led him away, and delivered him over to Pilate the governor. Who was Pilate? Pilate was a prefect or procurator appointed by Tiberius Caesar. He held the power of life and death. He needn't appeal to Caesar for this. He was authorized to take life for Rome. From Josephus and other historians of the time, we learn that Pilate was a cruel ruler who hated his Jewish subjects. But the Sanhedrin is willing to make use of him and to put political pressure upon him, such as their hatred of Jesus Christ 
And such is the hatred of every heart against the truth as it is in Jesus until the regenerating work of the Spirit changes us. The second thing we see is the death of Judas. We saw last time how he had betrayed Jesus in Gethsemane. Now we see that he is ashamed of what he did and he will hang himself according to this passage. Why is it here? It deepens the impression of the Sanhedrin's guilt. His remorse was determined by the Sanhedrin's decision to condemn our Lord. But the main point, the main reason that it's here, is to show that Jesus' crucifixion was divinely ordained. Matthew is continuing the theme we read in chapter 26, verse 24. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for him, for that man, if he had not been born. It is the theme of fulfillment. So in chapter 27, verse 4, we read, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. It should have been something to them. This is the Lord of glory. This is their creator who became man. It should have been something to them. But they are willing to kill Jesus, but unwilling to allow 30 pieces of silver to enter the temple treasury. They are thoroughly unjust, and they are very religious about it, and even attempt to give it to give it. A guise of legality. But all of this is fulfillment. Verse 9. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. You see, Matthew is a redemptive historical theologian. He understands that all of the Bible is about Jesus. And he sees back there in Zechariah 11 and in Jeremiah 19 patterns of apostasy and rejection that are now ultimately fulfilled in the apostasy of Israel and the rejection of Jesus by his own people. To use the words of D.A. Carson, Jesus was cheaply valued, rejected by the Jews, and whose betrayal money was put to a purpose that pointed to the destruction of the nation. What is happening here is the fulfillment of God's purpose of redemption. This is what the scriptures said would happen. The scriptures said this would happen because behind it is the God of truth and the God of the decree. What is happening here is that the eternal purpose and plan of God the Father to save sinners like you and me from our sins through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ is being fulfilled. God's plan of redemption. And the wrath of men, praise him. With that assurance that comes from this, this theme of the, the death of Judas hanging himself, with the assurance that even through the wrath of men, God will be praised, that his purpose of redemption is being fulfilled, we move thirdly to the trial before Pilate. And as you, as you move here, this is Christ before Antichrist, two world empires locked in antithesis. We have the interrogation. Are you the king of the Jews, he asks in verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. 
perhaps Pilate has the written charges right there in his hands. He's reading them. Ah, the charge is sedition. He says he's a king. Well, are you a king? Are you the king of the Jews? Are you what you say you are? Pilate wants to know if Jesus is a political revolutionary. A strictly religious charge would not be sufficient for the death penalty. The charge is quite obviously sedition. Behind this is the reason for the inscription above the cross. We will read next time, Jesus the king of the Jews. Yes, he's a king. Yes, he's a king, Pilate. Such a king as you have never seen. He will die. He will be raised on the third day from the dead. He will be proclaimed king. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. This theme goes all the way back to the prologue of Matthew and even to the point of his birth in Bethlehem of Judea, the town of King David. Jesus answered to him, are you the king? You have said so. Jesus is ambiguous. Why? He is ambiguous because the charge is false on the level of his accuser's understanding and of Pilate's understanding. Yes, he's a king, but not the kind of king they expect, not the kind of king to whom they look. And yet, it is true on a deeper level. Pilate could never have understood a king enthroned on a cross, could he? He could never have understood the kingdom of God as the inbreaking of God's saving rule, forming a new covenant church of truth and love, could he? Jesus, verse 12 tells us, was silent before the priests. Pilate points out that the Jews brought multiple charges in verse 13, but we read in verse 14, Jesus gave him no answer, not even to a single charge so that the governor was greatly amazed. He gave no answer to the charges, and Pilate was amazed. We should be amazed, too. What if Christ had talked Pilate out of condemning him? What if Christ had shown his kingly power? We know that he has already said in Gethsemane that he could have, he could have called immediately legions of angels. No. The one unflustered figure in the entire narrative. It's not the chief priests, not the scribes, not the Pharisees, not the Jews. It's not Pilate, the governor. The one unruffled, unflustered figure in the narrative is silent with a silence that expresses his lordship. The one on trial is in control and obedient to his father. Here is being fulfilled Isaiah 53, verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He is by his silence unveiling his true identity. Is there no member of the Sanhedrin that can recognize who he is? Can they not see that by his very silence he is being proclaimed the king of the Jews? He came to suffer as a ransom for many. And nothing will hinder that purpose. He will not defend himself. He will do nothing that will hinder his going to the cross to save you from your sins. And so we see, fourthly, Christ condemned and scourged. 
There's this subplot running through about Barabbas. This insurrectionist, this murderer. Pilate knows that Jesus is innocent, yet he condemns him. Verse 18 tells us the religious leaders were envious. They had stirred up the crowd, according to verse 20. And the crowd asks Pilate to follow custom and release a prisoner at this Passover time. And the ominous, ugly chants we read in verse 21 and following. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. If the crowd is faced with the choice of the one the Sanhedrin would have delivered and the one Pilate would have delivered, they will choose with the Sanhedrin. Listen. Barabbas is called by Matthew a leistes, a word that means robber, but also in many places means insurrectionist. Jesus is being charged as an insurrectionist. The real, the true insurrectionist is Barabbas. The two crucified on either side of Jesus were called leistai, the plural of lestes. Probably three cross posts had already been prepared for Barabbas in the middle and the two others on his side. Jesus then takes the place of the man in the middle, Barabbas. Here is substitution, the just for the unjust. But substitution is why he came. Though innocent, he dies that the unjust may be justified. Jesus is substituted on death row for Barabbas, that Jesus might be substituted on death row for you and for me. This he did to redeem us and to make us friends again. Wasn't it the old Puritan Thomas Goodwin that said he could have made new friends cheaper? He could have made new friends cheaper. Pilate was warned not to do this. His wife had had a dream. It simply underscores once again Jesus' innocence. And so Pilate gives in. In verses 24 and following we read, So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and our children. Can you imagine that? His blood be on us and our children. So Jesus is hated. Then he released for them Barabbas and having, it simply says, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. But let's not hasten by the word scourged. Do you recall Jesus' third prediction of his passion in chapter 20, verse 18, 19? See, we are going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged 
and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. And now they scourge him. Now the Jews limited scourging to 40 lashes minus one. But there was no limitation for Rome. This is the flagellum, short-handled instrument of torture. Upon the handle, the lashes, woven into the lashes, the leather strips, bits of bone, glass, metal. Sometimes at the end there was a hook so that as the person was scourged, the hook would grip into the flesh and tear into the back. Usually it happened that there was one soldier on one side and one on the other so that they could constantly continue the lashing. So there is Jesus. His flesh is torn. His veins are open. Perhaps even his inner organs are exposed. The Roman citizens were exempt from this awful torture. I looked it up in Josephus this week. You know, the ancient historian. Hadn't read it in a while. I looked it up in Josephus. What did Josephus have to say about flagellum, about this instrument of torture? Here's what he said. This is in War II, 21-5. Whipped until every one of their inward parts appeared naked. In 6-6, he says, whipped till his bones were laid bare. That's what the verse means in verse 26. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. That's what it means. And this scourging was vicarious too. The Heidelberg Catechism says, What do you understand by the word he suffered? Answer, that all the time that he lived on earth, but especially at the end of his life, sustained in body and soul the wrath of God against the sins of all mankind. But do not forget behind this is the Lord himself. Isaiah 53, 6, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Here we have the perfect example that what is done against God's will is not done without God's will. That the Lord is sovereign and in control. The cross was purposed for our salvation and yet wicked men are fully and completely responsible for their own wicked deeds. The fifth thing we see, Christ is mocked and tortured. They place upon him a robe of purple. Matthew actually says scarlet. The ancients did not distinguish shades usually as clearly as we sometimes do. Fulfilling what Jesus said would happen in chapter 17 and 20 of Matthew. And if the praetorium is the old palace of Herod, these soldiers take Jesus into the palace courtyard. And there they display how vicious a Roman soldier could be. They did not realize as they mock him as king that they were speaking the truth, that he is the king. And again, the wrath of men praise him. They crowned him with thorns, palm spines, probably acanthus, long, long spikes. And they crush it into Jesus' head. 
In Genesis 3.18, we are told that thorns and thistles are the result of the fall of man. Thorns are connected with the fall of Adam. Now the last Adam has come. And he bears the curse as those very thorns are pressed into his brow. Blood must now be dripping down his face, and they give to him a staff for a scepter. Hail, King of the Jews! Replaces Ave Caesar. And they adored him mockingly. Verses 28 and 29. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisted together a crown of thorns. They put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Luther said, The soldiers did more than was commanded them. Scourging was the practice, but in addition to please the priests, they gave him a crown of thorns, dressed him in a purple robe, and hailed him as king of the Jews because of his confession that he was a king. So they had a vaudeville, giving him a crown and imperial purple. What more cruel, biting, venomous, devilish mockery could they have devised? And that is what happens to the gospel now and ever will. They they spat upon your Lord. That's what the text tells us. They spat upon your Savior. Isaiah 50, verse 6. I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. Calvin says so beautifully, the face of Christ marred with spittle and blows has restored to us that image which sin had corrupted, indeed destroyed. And they hit him with the staff over and over and over and over again. How do I know that? Because the Greek tense is in the imperfect, which implies repetition. Hendrickson well says, How darkened man's mind, how depraved man's heart, how how dependable God's word, how durable Christ's purpose. Sixth thing, the deeper issue. Back in Matthew 16, verse 21, Jesus said this, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must, must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. What's the deeper issue here? It's necessity. That if you and I are going to be saved from our sins, Jesus must take our place and bear our doom. Necessity. The issue is deeper than man's hate. It is as infinitely great as God's love. Do you know those old words of Octavius Winslow? As he thinks about this deeper issue of the cross... Who delivered up Jesus to die? 
not Judas for money, not Pilate for fear, not the Jews for envy, but the Father for love. It's not a Jewish problem. It's not a Gentile problem. It is a problem of the human heart that has fallen in Adam. The problem is original sin, the corruption of our nature, so that we want to kill the God who is and be God ourselves. John Stott says so beautifully, before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, leading us to faith and worship, we need to see it as something done by us, leading us to repentance. Indeed, only the man who is prepared to own his share in the guilt of the cross may claim his share in its grace. Isaiah 53, 7 says, He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. Now the text ends in verse 31. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. John tells us that he carried the cross piece on which he would be crucified. He's being led as a lamb to the slaughter. Now you can sit here with a cold heart. Or maybe you can sit here and weep and mourn and grieve and still be lost. I've had people sit under my preaching, weep their eyes out, leave unsaved. Your eye is on man and not God. Until you see in this your own need, standing before a holy God, deserving his just displeasure, so that it required the Son of God to come into this world and bear our hell for us. Call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. But for those of us who believe in this one who was substituted for us, you are saved because he was condemned in our place. In my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. And what is the application? The application is very pointed and powerful and simple. In the words of Isaac Watts, Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul my life, my all, demands your soul, your life, your all.